The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Now, the question has been, is that AFib worsening the situation, or is the AFib simply a marker of the fact that the heart failure is worsening? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine, January 1st, 2019, titled Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation in Patients with Heart Failure, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. Our guest today is Dr. Vivek Reddy, who is Professor of Medicine Cardiology at Mount Sinai Hospital. He's the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust Professor in Cardiac Electrophysiology and the senior author of this paper. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Vivek, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. I was fascinated when I read your article on the meta-analysis of catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation. I've been fascinated by electrophysiology ever since the 90s when it came to the institution where I was then working. Could you describe what catheter ablation is for atrial fibrillation for uh, the audience, and most of the audience are practicing internists, practicing hospitalists, and residents. First of all, thanks for uh, having me on this podcast, Bob. Let's talk about what catheter ablation is. So in catheter ablation, what we're trying to do is to cauterize critical parts of the left atrium and the left atrial pulmonary vein junction, which seems to drive atrial fibrillation in most patients. What actually gets done during a catheter ablation procedure is driven in part by the baseline substrates. And what I mean by that is, let's say a patient has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or intermittent atrial fibrillation. In that situation, what is typically uh, performed is cauterization around the pulmonary vein ostia. So in the left atrium, where the pulmonary veins join the left atrium, we place a series of ablation lesions using either radiofrequency energy, which burns the tissue, or cryoenergy, which freezes the tissue, such that there's a ring of scar tissue that's created at the ostium or the origin of the pulmonary veins. The goal is that uh, we want to electrically isolate the pulmonary veins from the rest of the left atrium because there are triggers within the walls of the pulmonary veins that seem to trigger AFib, at least paroxysmal AFib. Now, when the atrial fibrillation progresses from intermittent to more persistent or chronic atrial fibrillation, then the procedure is sometimes uh, expanded. So pulmonary vein isolation is still performed, but then additional ablation within the body of the left atrium and sometimes within the body of the right atrium is also necessary. So that, in a nutshell, is what we do during catheter ablation procedures, for atrial fibrillation, that is. So in 2019, let's say I was doing outpatient medicine, who are the patients you expect to have referred for catheter ablation for AFib? So the major reason for doing catheter ablation is for symptom relief. There's, there's little controversy about that. So if a patient has atrial fibrillation, is feeling significant symptoms, palpitations, shortness of breath, sometimes even syncope, then uh, oftentimes 
will consider treating that patient with some rhythm control strategy. Now, the rhythm control strategy certainly can include antiarrhythmic drugs, such as you know, sort of the weakest antiarrhythmic drugs are things like beta blockers and calcium blockers, or they're the more dedicated antiarrhythmic drugs like flecainide, propafenone, sodalol, amiodarone, etc., donatorone. These are sort of medical options that are certainly quite reasonable. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, then we oftentimes consider catheter ablation. Now, I should say that in some patients, we consider catheter ablation even as first-line therapy before trying antiarrhythmic drugs. But that's usually the minority. The majority of patients, I think, are patients who try an antiarrhythmic drug. The drug either fails or the patient is intolerant to that drug. And then we perform ablation. So the primary reason is, is for symptom relief. But there are other sort of exceptions to that. So there are some patients who have ventricular dysfunction and no other cause for the ventricular dysfunction. So this is a, a scenario that we call tachycardia myopathy. So there's a real entity where patients who have atrial fibrillation will develop uh, ventricular dysfunction. So the overall uh, ventricular ejection fraction starts to become depressed. And in that population, even in the absence of of symptoms, we'll consider catheter ablation to reverse this tachycardia myopathy, that is to get rid of the atrial fibrillation and allow the ejection fraction to normalize. But again, the primary reason is for symptom relief. That brings us up to the controversy and why you did uh, the meta-analysis that you and your colleagues did. I'm going to ask you to explain HEFREF because my students and residents use it all the time. I just started hearing that term a couple of years ago. It drove me crazy at first, and I, <laughs> and I always have a hard time with HEFREF and HEFPEF. And, yeah. and I suspect that many uh, internists who are not around academic centers, this is totally confusing. So if you could explain that, because we're going to talk about HEFREF. Sure, absolutely. So let's just say, what does HEFREF mean? HEFREF is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. In contrast with HEFPEF, which is uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So these are concepts that have evolved from what previously we used to uh, term systolic heart failure versus diastolic heart failure. And there are reasons for that, which we can get into if we want. But, but basically, HEFREF means the patient has heart failure and the ejection fraction is uh, reduced. HEFPEF is, again, the patient has heart failure, but the overall ejection fraction is preserved, and there are other problems, uh, including impaired relaxation of the ventricle, the, 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 what, again, what was previously called diastolic heart failure issues. As I understand, the plan of this meta-analysis was to look at whether uh, ablation for atrial fibrillation in patients who have HEFREF would help them. Yeah, exactly. And why is that controversial? So let me just give you a little bit of background first. So patients with uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we know that when they develop atrial fibrillation, there's a spiraling downhill in terms of the clinical status. And this has been well described and, and not at all controversial. So if one has reduced ejection fraction, at some point they develop atrial fibrillation, then things worsen. Now the question has been, is that AFib worsening the situation or is the AFib simply a marker of the fact that the heart failure is worsening? And that's a little bit harder to tease out. Just a little over a decade ago, there was a landmark trial called AFCHF trial, which was a medical, which is a medication trial, comparing rate control versus rhythm control in uh, atrial fibrillation patients who had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And what was ultimately uh, the, the trial ultimately ended up being a comparison of rate control versus amiodarone for rhythm control. 
And the primary endpoint, which is mortality, was no different between the groups. In fact, all the secondary endpoints looked completely similar between the groups. And so for many years, we assumed that, okay, if one has heart failure, it doesn't matter whether you try to get the patient into sinus rhythm or not because, you know, the mortality is the same. Now, the problem with that is that amiodarone, which is the main rhythm control strategy, while it does do a reasonable job of maintaining sinus rhythm, amiodarone also has some negative effects in heart failure patients. There's some negative um, anotropic effects, and there's data that suggests that amiodarone can actually worsen mortality. So because of that, we, we never really understood whether the reason that that trial failed was because conceptually being in a sinus rhythm doesn't matter for heart failure patients, or whether it was because the strategy that we used to get sinus rhythm was actually flawed. So, and really, we couldn't even answer, uh, try to address that question further until the advent of catheter ablation and, and, the, and the trials that were performed. So over this past, um, I guess, decade or so, there have been a number of studies, initially smaller single-center studies, and then eventually larger, um, and particularly two larger multi-center studies that looked at this particular question. And the single-center studies, again, there was uh, four or five of them, and then more recently, and actually what we looked at, um, we looked at all of the single-center and multi-center studies uh, that addressed this question. There were, as I said, four single-center studies and then two larger multi-center studies. Uh, the two larger multi-center studies, which are a little more recent, uh, one is called ATAC-AF, A-A-T-A-C, and the other is called CASEL-AF. CASEL is the most recent one and the largest of these, uh, of these trials. And what was interesting is that they were different than what was seen in the AFCHF trial, meaning that when we look at all these trials together, what we found was that catheter ablation actually was associated with a substantial decrease in mortality, as well as all the secondary type of um, outcomes like heart failure, hospitalization, ejection fraction, quality of life, et cetera. Now, you asked about the controversy, and I think it's an important one. A couple of different aspects of this that... Um, one needs to understand. First, these were a total of six trials, randomized trials, uh, including a total of um, close to 800 patients. But about half the patients in this analysis came from one trial, which is the Castle AF trial, which had uh, 350 or 360 some patients in the trial. Uh, and, and that was an important limitation that we, um, we had to address. One of the reasons why we felt, or we, and we still feel, that this analysis is still important is because despite that limitation, for example, if you take out or if you look at the remaining trials and, and stop looking at CASEL in this analysis, the data is still concordant. I mean, you still see a trend toward um, mortality benefit. You still see a trend for hospitalization. So everything is concordant. Of course, the numbers are smaller with the earlier trials and don't reach statistical significance. Though I should qualify that with one important caveat. Before CASEL, again, the most recent trial, before that was published, the other multi-center trial, ATTAC-AF, which had about uh, 200 patients in that trial, interestingly, that study itself showed uh, a similar mortality reduction to what was seen with the full cohort or with CASEL. So, you know, I think that any single trial, is it's very hard to say that that, that, that should change clinical practice. But when you look at these large trials, and you put them in the context of each other, uh, and they're all pointing in the same direction, that certainly, um, I think, enhances the, the validity of the conclusion. I guess the thing that 
both inpatient and outpatient internists need to know is define the candidates that were in the study. I mean, are these a lot of people who have atrial fib and heart failure? This is towards the end of their life, but other people might otherwise be have a longer life expectancy. So uh, was there any selection bias in terms of the ages and the gender and stuff like that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, this is actually what I would consider the major limitation of this analysis, uh, well, of all the trials, uh, period. You know, it, it's, very, um, it's very possible, and it's hard to actually define this, but it's very possible that patients that are selected for a randomized trials such as this, you know, despite whatever you put in the inclusion and exclusion criteria, it's very possible that these patients were, we can call them, let's say, less sick than the full cohort of heart failure patients with AF. Um, in fact, I would, I would argue it's probably likely. So I think that, um, again, it's very difficult to, to quantify this. You know, if you look at, for example, the age of the population that we looked at, uh, the mean age is in the 50s to 60s. I mean, most of the patients in these trials were, again, 50s to 60s. Uh, if you look in Castle, for example, the median age was um, 64. In attack, it was 62. So these are not um, rep probably representative of heart failure patients with AF who are in their 70s, for example. Okay. The other interesting thing is, if you look, for example, again in Castle, it was interesting that the patients who had the worst ejection fractions did not derive as much benefit as those that didn't. And this was a statistically significant um, difference. So specifically, patients whose ejection fractions were very low, uh, and what I mean by very low would be, let's say, less than 25%, didn't have the same benefit that was seen in the patients whose EF was low, but not terribly low, let's say. And there was also a trend that patients who had the worst, uh, the worst functional class, so functional class three, didn't do as well as the patients that were functional class two. So what this suggests, and again, I, I, this is a suggestion, um, but probably uh, also one that makes sense. This suggests that if one is going to consider catheter ablation in these, uh, in these heart failure patients with AF, it's probably better to do it a little bit earlier in the disease course, before the AFib is worse, before the, um, the functional class decreases um, to class 3, and before the ejection fraction um, is extremely low. So again, I think we need more data to really say that, what exactly is, should, the, should the cutoff be? But what this tells me, I think, is that when we're taking care of patients who have heart failure and then they develop AFib, then we should be thinking, okay, is this a person that we should consider uh, maintaining sinus rhythm in? Is the, or, yeah, and I think it is fair, if a patient has a severely reduced ejection fraction, has renal failure and other comorbidities, then, you know, maybe the upside of ablation may not be um, fully realized in that patient. Well, that really brings up um, an important question that I'm sure patients ask, but those of us who refer to uh, electrophysiologists should know, what, what are the downsides? What are the side effects of the ablation? So all procedures obviously have, um, have risk, and uh, certainly that's true with catheter ablation. There are the complications that you can think of, the sort of acute things like um, vascular complications and things like that, which are relatively self-limited. There's more severe complications like pericardial effusion with tamponade physiology, which is a very important complication. Fortunately, 
uh, once it's dealt with, there's typically no long-term sequelae, but, uh, but it's an important issue. And that, in most of the clinical trials, uh, occurs around 1% of the population, uh, 1% of the, of the patient cohort. And then there's sort of the rarer but very important complications like pulmonary vein stenosis. Uh, fortunately, this doesn't happen as often uh, in current practice because of the improvements in technology and technique, um, but it can be an issue. But again, it's probably less than less than a half a percent um, in today's practice. And then the rarest but also the most dangerous uh, complication is damage to the esophagus. So, you know, as the esophagus runs behind the heart, it is possible to damage it in a way that can actually cause uh, a fistula between the um, the esophagus and the, and the atrium. Fortunately, we're all aware of this, and so we use different strategies to try to minimize damage. And in current practice, the incidence of atrial esophageal fistula is on the order of one in a thousand. So it's a rare complication, but a very important complication. But in aggregate, I guess what one has to view and certainly discuss with patients is that there is this real risk of complications. They're upfront, as with all procedures. But balanced against that is the potential for, at least as we saw in our meta-analysis, a 50% decrease in mortality. And, I, and you know, it's always difficult uh, when you talk about relative terms. But in our, in our analysis, the all-cause mortality, when you look at these different trials, went from about 18% to 9%. So we're talking, yes, a 50% reduction in mortality, but really that's a 9% reduction in absolute mortality, as well as, by the way, a seven-point increase in the injection fraction. So the, the 9% is that per year? This was the mortality that we saw over the course of the trial. So again, this is always the problem with meta-analyses, but some trials went for longer. So for example, CASEL was followed out to five years. Other trials like ATTACK, um, we had, I think, 24-month follow-up. And many of the other trials, which were smaller, the follow-up was more in the order of six months to one year. So this is looking at, across trials, looking at different, um, different follow-ups. So that is not an annualized rate. This is great. Let's wrap this up. What I really want to be sure of is that the internists listening to this and the residents, uh, whether they're inpatient or outpatient, understand all the benefits that electrophysiology can bring to heart failure management. And when I teach this on the wards, I've been talking about two things. Now I have to talk about three things. So see if I have these right, and, and you can comment on each of them. Uh, the first is, when do we place automatic and implantable cardiac defibrillator? Obviously, the base of that question is after patients are on optimal medical therapy. But once on optimal medical therapy, if the ejection fraction is still reduced less than 35%, then that's certainly um, a patient one has to consider an ICD for um, sudden death prophylaxis. And then... Uh, I always ask whether there's left bundle branch block and prolonged yeah. QRS because resynchronization really is wonderful in those patients. Could you go over that just a second? Again, patients should be in optimal medical therapy, but if the QRS is widened and particularly left bundle branch block, then there's little controversy that that resynchronizing that ventricle, meaning putting either a coronary sinus lead or some other lead to bring the QRS um, back to normal and bring ventricular activation back to normal. So there's little controversy that that actually not only improves the heart failure status of the patients, but also has an important favorable effect on mortality, on long-term mortality. 
So I think the, the, there are some questions there. So for example, the wider the QRS, the greater the chance of benefit. So particularly when the QRS is greater than 150 milliseconds, patients seem to derive the greatest benefit. When they're between 120 and 150, there's still uh, benefit, probably not as much. And I think you correctly emphasize left bundle branch block because patients who have a right bundle branch block really don't seem to derive any benefit from CRT. And indeterminate bundle is probably, indeter- is probably an immediate outcome, but closer toward um, not deriving benefit. So now I'm going to add ejection fraction, especially between 25 and 35% with atrial fibrillation. I think that's very fair. And I think that, um, I don't think the point is that all these patients should undergo ablation, but I think that um, certainly there should be a discussion about this and a consideration as to whether or not this is a patient that might benefit. Right. And so let's emphasize, this is when you find your friendly electrophysiologist and say, is this patient a candidate? Is this is the, is there something we should be doing? And yeah. then, and then uh, let the electrophysiologist look at the situation to help us decide whether we could actually help that patient, especially uh, that younger group in the 50s and 60s. I think that's a very fair conclusion. And, and I should you know, also point out that there are a couple of other trials that, are, uh, that have been ongoing and um, some in the follow-up phase. So this whole issue of, of catheter ablation in this HEFREF population, we'll, we'll have more data in the next couple of years. And the, and the other caveat to that is, the population with HEF-PEF, meaning they have heart failure, though their ejection fraction is normal, those patients also can have atrial fibrillation, and they also do worse when they develop atrial fibrillation. And there's actually a couple of trials going on to look at the importance or the relative um, benefit or lack thereof of catheter ablation in that population. So we're going to get a lot more data in the upcoming years. Well, I think this is really important since heart failure continues to be one of the most common reasons for hospitalization. Uh, in the United States. I think it's the number one Medicare cost diagnosis. Yeah. And what the picture that you've painted here is some knowledge that we hope expands over time of how to deal with atrial fibrillation, heart failure. So in the last minute, if you could give the audience your real big take-home message from this study and this conversation. Well, I think the major take-home message is that Catheter ablation can really improve outcomes in patients who have AFib and heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. And that those improvements are tangible improvements both in terms of the quality of life of patients as well as their ejection fraction, which ultimately culminates in uh, improvements in heart failure hospitalization and mortality. Um, I think the major caveat to this is that not all heart failure patients with AFib are the same. And uh, it's important to apply this information on a case-by-case basis. Vivek, thank you so much for helping us understand this most important article. And please thank your uh, co-authors on the paper for making this complex topic make a great deal of sense uh, and give me a better way to think about potential ways to treat heart failure. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This most interesting meta-analysis provides data that suggests that patients with heart failure and systolic dysfunction at a level of less than 35%, now commonly known as HEFREF, 
who also have atrial fibrillation have mortality and quality of life benefits with ablation of the atrial fibrillation. The data suggest that the benefit is maximized when the ejection fraction is in the range of 25 to 35% and the benefit starts to decrease below 25%. Interestingly, as Dr. Reddy points out, this is also true for New York Heart Association class, that the benefit is greater in those who are class 2 as opposed to class 3 or class 4. He also mentions that there are uh, many studies going on that will further clarify our knowledge of the benefits of ablation in atrial fibrillation and heart failure. Finally, he leaves us with the tantalizing thought this may also be worthwhile in patients with preserved ejection fraction and heart failure. This has opened my mind to a consideration of the overall management of patients with heart failure who happen to also have atrial fibrillation. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.